Hi, everyone. This is Abhishek from ShakeTheCosmos.com. My guest today is Pat O'Brien. I'm really excited to have him on the show as he sees someone that leverages his operational and sales management expertise to help startups and young technology companies grow faster by building world-class teams and processes. And we actually met when I was interviewing with him for a sales role, and I really appreciated his advice and the coaching that he gave me. And we're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about sales at early stage startups. We're going to bust out, bust some uh, sales myths and talk about a little bit about the exciting real estate construction AI technology um, space that Indus operates in. Uh, and if you're listening right now, now is a great time to hit the follow button or subscribe button. And if you like this episode, give me a rating that helps me out in the organic search results. Well, Pat, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate your time here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have the conversation. All right. Well, we're going to start off right away. Go Bears. Um, and, And so let's just jump right into it. So what's your definition of an early stage startup space and what makes this the sales in this space particularly different than some of the established companies? That's a great question. One I've thought about a lot. We talked a little bit. I think now date myself a little bit. I've been doing this sort of startup thing and really focused on the sales piece for almost 20 years now. So I I do have a little experience. I would say, well, there's certainly no hard and fast rule. The number $5 million in revenue is one good or easy way to sort of gauge, all right, we probably still are in startup phase. Some could argue it's 10 million. Some may even say it's two, but I'll meet halfway. And really... The signs are, um, are you still finding product market fit? Every company is still doing that a little bit. But if it's mostly that, then you're probably still doing startup sales. And if you're still sort of haven't gotten to a place where you see repeatability across the sale and you're still figuring things out, you're probably still doing startup sales. So that's kind of how I would define it. Um, yeah. And then what it, what is uh, like when you say repeat, repeatability in sales, what does that look like for an early stage startup? Um, yeah. And I, you know, I, I'm now president of, of, of I've got sort of um, responsibility for beyond sales. So I, I'd love to answer that question even more broadly than just sales, although we can talk about the sales piece too. And that really is okay from, for example, a sales perspective. Am I repeatedly seeing the same ICP? In other words, is the ICP the same or is it just a whole different thing? Am I getting traction in the same market? Is the pricing model that I'm pitching and talking about, is it resonating or am I having to customize it every time? And you know, are the personas ident- identify as the kind of champion, all the sort of important things that those of us think about sales, if that is keeps being different every time you obviously don't have repeatability but honestly it goes it's more than just sales and sort of that front end i would argue at least as important and maybe even more importantly is the success on the back end so maybe you're repeatedly selling customers and i've seen this occasionally but if you're really struggling with how to figure out how to drive success with them and it's always one off well you still haven't found you aren't there yet, right? At that scale moment, you still need to figure out repeatability on that side. So the point is sometimes you'll have that repeatability in one part of the business, but not in another. 
And that means you still got a little ways to go. And it's nothing to apologize for, right? It's not a bad thing. It's just, and I've, I've mentioned this before sometimes, I even wrote a blog post about this. There is a great pressure within early stage companies, comes from the events community and lots of places to reach that point. And so you, as a founder or an early stage executive, you feel the pressure to say, yes, we're at scale. Let's do the scale thing. Let's raise that B round. Let's, let's go hire a bunch of salespeople, et cetera, et cetera. But I would, I would always counsel, resist that if you can, if it's not true. If it's true, of course, embrace it. But if it's not, um, be careful. Uh, pay, the, pay the dues. <laughs> and then this pressure that you speak of that the early stage startups feel and um, to uh, how like how can founders sort of just recognize that and starting to try to overcome that at least <laughs> or yeah. maybe they can't <laughs> yeah you know i don't i don't know if there's a magic answer but let's let's be honest about the dynamics at play so most young companies in the tech space, certainly all the ones I've been involved with are usually venture backed, right? And so um, it's other people's money and they have an expectation, but there's a pretty significant difference that founders should just readily acknowledge. And if you don't, then you need to think about it, but it's true, which is investment teams and venture, venture capitalists, they have a portfolio of companies. And so they're trying to find the ones that go, all right, this, these are the ones I really want to spend the time on. These are the ones we want to double down on. These are the ones we want to put the wood behind the arrow on. And the others, if they come around, great. But whereas if you're a founder of a company, you're all in on the one, right? And so you need to be, it isn't just about the, the mentality that you're, that say, of, of somebody who has an investment portfolio is looking at things at is different. And so I think my counsel is just keep that in mind and resist sometimes the urge to do it. I mean, again, obviously, if operationally, you just you keep messing up, then there's probably going to be a change. But I would just say, there's no extra points for artificially getting to that place where you can scale if you're not ready. In the end, it will cost you many times whatever perceived benefit you might might get by pushing to do it before you're ready. Man, so I'm imagining, you know, 5 million to 10 million revenue startup, they've got this pressure now and, you know, they're sitting across from customers and prospects. So what are some of your favorite questions to ask uh, of prospects and customers? Yeah, I, um, I'm a big believer in the notion or the idea and it's not anything sort of super revolutionary, but I do find it's, it's rare enough that it's worth mentioning of having a set of learning objectives. And honestly, a lot of things when you advertise this stuff in terms of sales, I believe there are things you want to think about that transcend sales. So for any meeting or any interaction in business, I believe it's wise to come to that with not just what do I want to say. All of us know that. And we're repeatedly reminded about that part. But honestly, I think that's easy. It's like my pitch. What am I going to say? How am I going to convey it? I think at least as important, and I might even argue more important, is what do I want to learn? What do I want to understand? And if you watch, honestly, great salespeople at work, they're really good at that. And maybe you could even use the analogy of a doctor. Um, so uh, it's learning objectives. And I think you, you want to have a broad sense in, of what I'll call strategic alert, learning objectives. And then you want to just have tactically for every conversation you have, every call you have, every meeting you have, what are the things I want to learn? Um, so that's the first point. Um, 
after that, I am a big fan of, you know, the sort of classic sales methodology. So I think we might talk a little about this more later, but if you think of something like medic, which is, has got a lot of traction in Silicon Valley because a lot of really successful companies practice the sales methodology and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's Dan, it's an acronym metrics, economic buyer, decision process, decision criteria, identify pain and champion. But really, if you think about all those things, they are all guides for the kinds of things I want to learn. If I'm in a certain stage in a, in a, a deal, for example, and I'm competing with another company, gosh, I should really understand what's how the decision makers and the buyers are going to say, this is how we're going to decide. This is what's important. And if I'm really good at selling, I'm going to try and influence that decision criteria because I asked about it early on to favor my solution. And so Mm. learning objectives are, are a great idea and have in any good methodology really is a guide for all the things you want to learn to close a deal. And then and what's, what's asked, made... Uh... Sorry, you asked some specific examples. Like, I will say my favorite question is one word. It's why. So it's not asked enough, right? And, and like anything else, I always joke, you can have learning objectives. And I've, sometimes I've written lists 100 long. If you go in and say, hey, I've got 100 questions and I'm going to interrogate you, the, the, you're going to get hung up on or they're going to walk you to the door, right? You have to earn the right to ask questions, and if you keep asking why, you're going to sound like that sort of annoying six-year-old. So, But sometimes it's the greatest question in the world. But some others I like are, for example, what's the strategic in, in initiative driving your interest? Sometimes somebody says, hey, I saw your solution. Give me a demo. Let's talk about it. And you just go, God, I got him on the hook. And you go, hey, we have budget. And they just tell you all these right things. It's like, oh, man, you want to tell your boss? And you skip over the part like, well, well what's driving this interest? And I've seen... Too many times where even things that eventually ended in deals where you didn't know that and what you've lost is an opportunity. One, if things do go off track to hit your wagon to that. And two, it's one of the most effective ways to increase a price or drive urgency. If you've aligned yourself to a strategic initiative, you, you really have a chance to differentiate yourself and maybe sell at a higher price point in a more strategic way. Another one is, I mentioned it before, how do you decide between alternatives? Too often you see salespeople never really ask that question. Like they might, they're just, a, it's all about it. Let me tell you about all the stuff that matters to you uh, or should matter to you. And what's cool about my product. And you never bother to ask the question. So, and then that questions I find are really, really important. Um, and I, I think it's, it's a, it's a little bit of a lost art. It's, it's something that in my mind differentiates good from great in sales. I also feel some of the questions that you're saying kind of adds a comfort level for the customer. Like, oh, this person really is genuinely curious about my business and problems and just cares about my strategic initiatives. And it kind of changes the conversation. Yeah. And it's fascinating. I think um, we might talk later about this notion of talent. And I I am a big believer in talent. I I don't know that anybody can be in the same way. Not anyone could be a fantastic concert violinist. Everyone can't necessarily be a great salesperson. And one of the things I've found that is a, a, a innate talent of great salespeople is this sort of almost insatiable curiosity that has to be satisfied. And so I always tell people, exercise, exercise that curiosity, right? Let, let that, that guy go inside of you. 
um, it's okay. And again, like anything, you can take it too far, but um, in my experience, it's, it's, it's probably uh, an underutilized talent. And then um, definitely want to talk about some of that talent. Actually, well, why don't we, I mean, I think one of the things that you mentioned also in your, one of your blog posts is like uh, one of the biggest criticisms, I'm quoting, one of the biggest criticisms I have for early software start companies, especially those with sophisticated investors and some early success, is they believe they're totally ready to scale. Um, And I can think of many companies in this position. So at what point does a company know that it can focus on scaling? Yeah, we touched on that a little bit. I, I, again, like so much else, I don't know if there's a magic answer, a definitive like set of data that's absolute for every company, but it's basically... When you have, when you've seen repeatability against the important parts of your business, um, I think we talked a little about sales. But you know, if your sales start to look similar, um, and your delivery starts to look similar, and how you market starts to look similar, um, and your pricing model starts to look similar across deals, and you say, "Wow, this th- this customer wants basically the same thing the other customer, and they want to buy it the same way as this other customer," it's like, "All right." I can layer process on top of that because that's the other thing you see too sometimes at startups is let's put all this process on top of, whoa, whoa, on what? What are you layering that process on top of? You don't have a repeatable mm-hmm. anything to put the process on top of. And so it's it's seeing that repeatability. And whether that means you see three deals that are exactly the same or five, um, it, that really depends. But if you can look yourself in the mirror and say, all right, those last three deals or four or five deals look similar. Those last three or four implementations, we needed the same thing. We know the kind of caliber of CS person we need. We know how much interaction it is. We know we need to have someone on site or not. All those questions are similar. Then you go, all right, now I can build process. I can hire a team and I can scale this up. And God, I need to go talk to the investors because I need another you know, 10 or 20 or 30 million because I can show them if I just pour fuel on this fire, it's going to start to rage. All right, Pat. So... I want to jump a little bit into the talent piece and uh, sort of the conventional sales wisdom debunked. So uh, one of the things, um, you know, I've heard um, and seen from you is it doesn't hurt to be a great presenter, but it's simply not essential. So can you walk me through the types of things that are more important mano a mano than just being a great presenter? Yeah, absolutely. And let's double click on that point, though, because I think it's important. I think Sometimes when I say that, people think, well, so you're saying salespeople being good at presenting is, is useless or not good? No, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is, again, the conventional wisdom, if you maybe ask someone off the street what good sales is, they almost make it sound... They'll, they'll, their feeling is it's the same as good presenting. And it's, it's just not. I think if you're you know, running for president, if you're Barack Obama, we think about all these great orators being able to present to a large crowd is a wonderful skill, but that's not how usually sales happens. Every once in a while, and I know I've had to do this, you have to get in front of a room of dozens of people. And then that does become more of a presentation and less of an interaction and a conversation. But that is very rare. Normally, it's maybe it's the salesperson and one other person. That's 90% of the time. And eight eight or 9% of the time, it's two or three people from the selling team and two or three or four people from the buying team. It's still an interactive session. And again, one or 2% of the time, it's a real presentation. So 
that's kind of the point. So if that's the case, if presenting isn't going to be the skill that differentiates me as a salesperson, then maybe I need to work on the things that will. And that is really just um, being able to drive a conversation. So you mentioned talent. I'll touch on that because I think it's related. I have my own belief when you think of talent, like in other words, what's innate, what's not a skill that I can develop from the grassroots. All of these things, obviously you can enhance, but I would, in the same way that somebody who's five foot five is going to have a really, really hard time playing center in the NBA because they're just not tall enough, right? It's not nothing to debate. They're probably good at something else. I think there are certain traits where if it's not a strength, it's going to be hard to be really, really exceptional in enterprise sales. And again, it's not to dismiss enhancing skills. To me, those are, we talked a little about curiosity. Great salespeople naturally ask questions. And usually that's because they naturally can't help themselves because they're naturally a little more curious than the average Joe. And they have this sort of insatiable need to satisfy that curiosity that just gets turned on in sales. The next one is um, rapport. So we talked a little about what's different about startups and big companies. You know, big companies are built to buy from big companies. They just are. And so when you're, you work for a startup, you don't get the benefit of some of those things. And so you have to figure out ways to compensate for the fact that maybe you don't have Cisco or Salesforce on your business card. And that means as an enterprise sales rep at a small company, you have to be able to substitute for that credibility that the, the name of your business already has because it's established. And so you have to be able to build rapport quickly. Some people do it with a sense of humor. Some people do it just because they're friendly, whatever, right? They're, they, I would never prescribe style, but there are some people who are good at that and others who aren't. And I think the last one is what I call drive. So drive is just, it's not, it, it's ability to drive. So there's personal drive, which is great. And that's good for everyone. But if you watch a great salesperson at work, and I've, you've seen, I've seen this myself. There could be a meeting and there are six or seven people that work for this buying company and there's the salesperson. And if you just scratch your head, you might go, well, hang on. The salesperson is basically telling everyone else what to do. And you, don't, you can't do that unless you, you know how to work it, right? There's just a skill and a talent, a talent to doing that. And so those are some of the things that I believe are important to sales and in particular, uh, enterprise sales at a, at a young or startup company. Um, so I'm thinking like a enterprise sales and young startup company is now, you know, trying to hire Salesforce and, you know, some of the traits you mentioned, the curiosity, rapport and being driven, like what can the companies do to come across to the, this hurdle, uh, when they're hire, hiring the sales talent? Well, yeah, I think there's, you know, there's a question about, all right, how do I determine if a salesperson is good? And we can talk about that. And then, you know, how do we attract and retain those two, two different questions, but they're clearly related. To the first one, um, you know, look, I, I, like so much else, there's not a magic answer. I think a lot of the things people do for this are good things. But I do believe that an actual sort of recruiting process, the process of somebody being interested in working for a company and quote-unquote selling themselves and the company saying, hey, we have a need we have to fill and we're assessing this person or this multiple people and comparing them looks a lot 
darn it, like a sale. Um, it's not identical, but it's very similar. So at least for me and my experience, um, it's a great test for how people operate, how they carry themselves, what they do. You know, do they operate with integrity? Are they straightforward? Do they follow through? Do they know how to exercise curiosity? Can they drive? Do they know what it means to talk about strategy and ask questions about what's driving a decision? All those things that you would expect a good salesperson to do when they're trying to sell and make a deal happen, they probably need to do if they're selling themselves. Again, it's not identical. So that's, to me, first and foremost. Now, do you want to do reference checks? Do you want to look for sort of, we, we talked a little about startups and repeatability. Do you want to see in their, in their background and their history repeated success? Of course. I, I caution that a little bit though, especially with startups, because sometimes people are great, but they're just in a situation that is impossible. And that just happens with startups. Poor Mark. So you see five or six of those in a row. Well, then you've got a trend and you've got a, a red flag. But every once in a while, that happening to a good sale and vice versa. Sometimes people jump on a rocket ship that's going to the moon and it was on its way anyway. And there could be stragglers, honestly. And just because they were a part of a giant success story doesn't necessarily by itself mean they're 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 perfect and, and incredible. Um, I, I will comment. I don't know if you were asking this, but I just think it's a, a fascinating thing. And I want to make a plug for a piece of content I absolutely love. Um, Dan Pink did a um, TED Talk on human motivation that is just fascinating. It's just filled with lots of really interesting data and supporting arguments. And basically, the premise is this. Money is not a great motivator. Now, you, you go to a conference of sales leaders and you say that, they start throwing their lunch at you. Like, what? What did you just say? But it is something to think about. I highly recommend checking it out. And basically, the, the net net of it is um, money. What, what you want to do is, as a sales leader, I think it's the number one task, is attract and retain great talent. And one of the ways you retain great talent is to make sure you pay them well. In terms of motivating them, though, that happens in other ways. And so it's, I won't, I won't babble on about the, the TED Talk, but it's worth checking out. And we talked a little about conventional wisdom. It is interesting. I, always say, I think it's great. Just imagine you have a sales rep and we'll use easy numbers and they have a $2 million deal and they get paid 10%. So they're going to make a lot of money, 200 grand if they close this deal. And then you go to them and say, you know what? I'm going to make the commission 12%. I would say, do you think they're going to go, oh, now I'm really going to try? You don't think they were already trying? They were, right? At some point, it is not about the money, right? It's now, if that salesperson can find all the same other motivations somewhere else and make more money, well, of course, that matters. So I'm not saying it doesn't matter at all, but it's probably not the number one thing. So when we think about keeping and retaining and attracting talent, we probably need to think about things that go beyond just the paycheck. And um, I think it's interesting you bring up the Daniel Pink uh, TED Talk. I have seen that. I'm familiar with that. So just to follow up from that, you know, as as we're going through this, what might be other levers the companies can pull to retain and to grow the talent, uh, especially sales talent? Well, yeah, I think, you know, 
that begins to become very sort of case specific, company specific. But let's talk a little about startups. In my experience, and I, I can even talk about myself, one of the things that, you know, because I always show people go, Pat, you're going to work for an early stage startup, like a sub million dollar startup again. Are you totally nuts? And I say, well, first of all, you know me, you already know the answer to that question. Yes, I'm certifiably nuts. But the thing you get at a startup is this opportunity to sort of grow. I mean, sometimes it's grow like pull your hair off and your hair out and jump off a cliff at the same time kind of growth. But all these really very fundamental challenges exist. And there's just a certain type of person that craves the ability to say, you know what, I think I can, I can be a key part of tackling those fundamental challenges, which I would argue, not in a bad way, those start to fade when a company's doing 20 or $50 million in sales. They kind of have figured it out. And it becomes much more of a pure execution play, even at that stage. Heaven forbid a company at 50, 100 billion. Now, you can get paid a lot of money helping a company that's at 100 million grow to 250 million. I'm not dismissing that. But the kinds of challenges sometimes they're more about execution and refinement and growth, not the fundamental sort of existential threat questions. And so when you're thinking about attracting salespeople to that, you say, all right, I'm going to help you make money. I'm going you know, to take that issue off the table so you can still make as much money in those other places. But are you interested in taking the next step in your career? Because I would argue you're going to get a much better chance of doing that here at my startup than you will if you go to work for, for example, Salesforce. And so it's about attracting that kind of person. And if that's the kind of person you want as a startup founder or leader or whatever, you have that in your, in your bailiwick. And it is a, to me, it's an asset that a bigger company doesn't have. Um, so that's, I, I've never thought, yeah, I've never thought about it as an asset. It's interesting. Yeah, it does. Early stage startups do offer that growth opportunity and that need to tackle these problems than others might not. Yeah. I think I'll say another thing again, I'm, I'm, I'm an obviously an unabashed, uh, sort of advocate for early stage startups, but you can't hide at a startup. You cannot hide. And there are certain people who crave that, like, where they don't want to be in an environment where there are people who are just going through the motions. And any successful startup, that's impossible. It just, you stick out like a sore thumb. And I find in sales, sometimes some of those hard driving folks, that's, that's what they want, right? And so I think, again, there are people who make lifestyle decisions based on big, there's, not, there's no problem about going to work at a big company. I'm not dismissing it. it it's not for me, but I'm not dismissing it. But in terms of attracting talent, you want to say, all right, here's the profile person I want. And I want that profile to match the assets I have to sell. And young companies have really interesting assets. And so you're, to your point, you, you hopefully are taking what some people might say is a downside, like I risk and turning it into an asset. Because at least for me, it is. Well, and then actually, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about how... how why you like working in the early stage uh, sales piece as well. I'm just thinking another sales uh, wannabe is listening to your story and maybe they get a little bit of inspiration there. Yeah. I, um, I'll, I'll give you the sort of super readers digest more. I don't want to, anybody listening to this, I haven't forbid that put them to sleep. So, and then you, you get hate mail on your column and all that. So I don't, I don't want that to happen, but I'll give you the readers digest version of my story. So I happen to have, an engineering degree from UC Berkeley here locally, go Bears. Um, 
my friends will go out at least once a month outside, look up in the sky and put their hands together and say, thank God that's not the dude building the bridges we drive on or the cars we drive in. Right. Like, so I got into sales early in my career and kind of found my calling, but I always had the ambition of being a founder and I'm going to bore you. I've taken a few swings of starting my own companies here and there and, you know, rounded to the nearest success or failure. They've been failures, but I don't regret doing them. And the net net is, you know, I, I eventually found I was good at sales and I, at, early in my life, I was making a ton of money, lots of money. But what I found is, uh, what really turned me on is, hey, I've got a chance to go to work for a company, broadly speaking. And one of the ways I choose the companies I go to work for, where I can honestly say, this company has a chance to put, you know, I'll use a Steve Jobs-ism, you know, maybe it's a little hackney, to put a dent in the universe, right? And so... Um, hopefully the money follows and certainly I'm as much a money grubbing SOB as the next sales guy. Um, and I want to get paid for the hard work I do, but you know, as we talked about before, it sometimes becomes about more than that. And so what attracts me is the chance to put a dent in the universe. And then what I find at startups is, and I, I live this every day now, I'm living it at Indus is there are just big, important, sometimes existential threat to the company sort of things that need to be tackled. And it's just wonderfully rewarding to do that right now. Is it sometimes deeply frustrating at times too? Yes, it is. But I think the reason I keep coming back is I look back on those experiences and say, wow, that was fun. Even in the cases where maybe it didn't pan out, the sort of relationships I've made, the way I've grown, um, personally, honestly, and professionally. So yeah, that, that's, that's why. And I, I can say quite honestly, I mean, I've, I've done all right for myself. I'm probably nearing the point if I really didn't want to work anymore, I, I don't necessarily have to, but I, I'm going to keep doing this probably until the people just tell me, Pat, get lost, man. You're not, you just, you're, you're bothering us too much. Like I, it, it, it will soon not even be about the money. Uh, although again, it, that does matter. Um, but, but I just dig doing it. So we can say all we want not to be too philosophical here about the challenges of Silicon Valley. And there are some, the wealth inequality, all that fun stuff we could talk about. But this, this area where we live in is just sort of has this unique, all of these young companies and these extremely bright people married with ambition and drive and entrepreneurialism. It's just, it's intoxicating, man. It is. And so I, I dig it. That's why. So it's a maybe a short, maybe yeah. too long version, but a shorter version of why I keep coming back and and going to work for for young companies. I appreciate you sharing your story. And what would be like your advice to someone, sort of on the other end now, to someone uh, who's trying to break into sales? Yeah, I mean, we talked a little about it. I, I'm just. You know, I have kids, some you know, two, two, two kids in college now, and I, you know, I have the advice I give them or anyone is like, you know, be honest with yourself. What are you good at? What are you not? What are you inclined to do? And this is not to say we all can't improve skills. We all can't be better people. Like all those things are true. But as we mentioned before, you know, look in the mirror and be honest. Like, what are your inclinations? What you know? Don't decide you want to be a particle physicist if you have a hard time with algebra. It's just, if you're not, a, and I think too often the common culture is anyone can do anything. And that's just, 
it, it, it sounds like, oh, Pat, well, you're hating on sort of people empowering people saying, no, I, it, 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 that's, it does people disservice. Anyone can't do anything. That's just not true. And so that's the first thing. But assuming, and then I think the other thing is there's a mentality in sales. It's, it can be a little ruthless and it's stressful and it's different than other jobs. Not to say other jobs don't have stress too, but you are on the hook. And as they say, like, it's, what have you done for me lately? You could have a killer quarter in the next quarter. It's like, I, uh, what, what, are you, what quarter? I don't like, we're, we're now, man. Talk about the deals now. And so there's a mentality, but assuming you believe you have the talents, we talk about that and assuming you, that mentality energizes you, doesn't frighten you or scare you or, you know, depress you. Then I would say it's like anything else, pay your dues. Um, not to, I'm a big basketball fan, but it's nothing wrong with going to work as an SDR. And again, if you, and, and just learning sales, again, my daughter's kind of in this space now and that's what I've done for her. And she's worked her way up and you see it. I'm a fan of the story. If you're a basketball fan that people might be familiar with, Eric Spolster has been a long time heat coach for, in the NBA basketball. He started basically as a work for free kid in the video room of the heat basketball organization. And, and back in those days, they, they really didn't even pay those guys. He's the head coach and has two or three championships and is regarded as one of the finest coaches in the NBA, if not all sports. He paid his dues, right? Um, and there's something to be said for that. And, you know, some people are going to step in and, and the talent's going to be obvious and it's going gonna, it's gonna to accelerate. So find an opportunity. It doesn't have to be the glorious, you know, I'm the top sales rep day one. Um, if you get that wonderful, but for most of us, we have to start, you know, a typical starting role in sales is maybe an SDR, but you have a plan. You put a plan in for yourself and say, here are the things I have to do to be good at an SDR, but here are the things I'm going to, here's the plan for me to take the next steps. And it sounds like motherhood and apple pie stuff, but that's it. Like have a plan for your career, be willing to pay the price, the dues, um, recognize and be honest with yourself about your own talents and go for it. And I think there, the thing I would just say is it, the prototypical salesperson in my experience aren't necessarily the successful ones. Does it hurt to be gregarious? Of course not. You have a sense of humor that doesn't hurt, but there are lots of great salespeople who are shy, lots of great salespeople who may be a little monotone. Um, that's not it. We talked about some of the talents. And so just uh, don't let the stereotypes uh, scare you away. And then um, I know there's some exciting things happening as well in your own career um, with um, Indus. Um, if you're okay, we would kind of shift uh, topics to that a little bit. Yeah, no, I appreciate you asking. Um, won't make too much of a plug. So yeah, I'm obviously very excited about what we're doing with Indus. Uh, been here almost two years, and um, you know, at the end of the day, what we're doing is uh, taking two sort of core technologies, which is computer vision and then AI slash ML machine learning and applying that to sort of large scale um, construction to essentially um, reduce the inefficiencies in construction. And I sometimes people, even in our space, sort of poo-poo like, oh man, construction, they're way behind the times and every other space is way ahead. It's not terribly fair, right? Some of that is a little fair, but not totally. Because if you go to a construction site, I think most people know this, people's lives are at stake. You know, people die on construction sites all the time, unfortunately. Not 
nearly like it used to be, but it still happens. And so unlike, you know, MarTech or sales tech, where nobody's going to die if you make a mistake with your, you know, your sort of pipeline, right? But if you're too casual about trying new things on a construction site, there could be, you know, dire consequences. So I think the uptake in technology has been sort of suppressed because of that. But now there, there are trends happening in, in construction, in particular, this, you know, like any other space, the need to be more efficient. And then also broadly, there's just a talent crisis in construction. They don't have the sort of talent they need. And so the only opportunity for them to tackle this is through technology. So we're, we're diving in on that. We've got a lot of exciting things going on. As we mentioned, it's a startup. So we also have challenges we're tackling. But as, as we, I'm energized by it and excited. Great team. Got some new leadership in, involved. And uh, we're hopefully taking the world by storm. A little bit of an impact from, from the pandemic. Um, like many businesses, and we can talk a little more about that, but we think we're on the other side of that uh, and excited going forward. Great. I know um, I reserved some time with you and we're going over that. So I do want to be mindful of of the time we have with you. No problem. I Uh, gave myself a little block. We're cool. (laughs) Happy to, happy to, uh, to keep talking. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Well, I think, you know, you mentioned that uh, a little bit of a, there is some impact of COVID on, on the business as well. And, and then what is, what does that look like in your industry? Yeah. So like a lot of businesses, maybe not all of them. I mean, Amazon is doing great and some others in zoom, but for most businesses, this has had at least somewhat an adverse effect and construction is no different in particular, you know, doing construction, right. You have people getting together to do the construction and they, by nature have to be on the site and sometimes have to be close together. So the first reaction by a lot of, of the companies and policymakers and regulatory agencies was to, to shut these sites down. And so obviously that put a damper on the industry. Now, the good news is many of them have been viewed in most cities, not universally, but in most cities as a sort of essential business, right? At some point, if you don't have enough apartment buildings and enough places for people to live, right? The people recognize like you can't just turn that off. So things are mostly back to normal, took a little while. And what's interesting, that's good news, right? So we're, there was a pause and there was a break and we actually sort of slowed down our own business to sort of mirror that. And, but now we're essentially full steam ahead. That actually just happened in the last month, hiring salespeople, hiring on the tech front. So now it's changed though. And I, I imagine it's changed probably for a little while and then some things maybe forever. And that is, you know, obviously you have this construction site, people, the notion of health and safety was already a deeply important sort of subject on construction sites, but I would argue it's become even more so, right? Because, hey, I want to reopen my construction site and you have a neighbor across the street saying, hey, um, you have all these folks coming from out of town. Are they all going to be wearing masks? Are they all going to be social distancing? And so these companies have almost a PR. I mean, obviously they want, they are concerned about the health and safety of their employees and the people on the construction site. There's also a PR element to this, right? To be able to advertise to regulatory agencies and others that they are operating a safe site, Um, employees, subcontractors. So we're helping some of those companies with that kind of thing. And it's a change. And as we all know, if we follow the news, unfortunately, this this COVID pandemic thing is not going to turn off tomorrow. So, Hopefully, sooner the better. 
but we're probably looking into well into 2021. And frankly, as I mentioned, there will probably be a broader change, just a more folks will be more conscientious about health and safety for a long time, probably in, in good ways. And so that's, you ask about sort of the near-term impact and that's sort of the classic thing, but there's also some more medium and longer-term impacts we're seeing, for example, on, on the health and safety piece. And then, so what's uh, what's next at Indus then uh, sort of looking at the future? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, a lot, you know, continue the business, continued growth, all those sort of standard things any business wants to do. But we have a few things that um, we're, we're, we've kind of made a recent decision on. Um, one is we're going to, we've decided, actually this happened this week, we're going to uh, go international. So obviously, one of the things I, when I get involved with startups and I, I work for several, but I also have the opportunity to maybe advise others on the side. To me, the number one challenge I see at very early stage startups is focus, Right. The natural inclination when you're at an early stage startup is, man, I want anyone anywhere who will say yes to me and get going. And so when you think about sort of focus, like, oh, no, no, I'm going to keep the lens wide open. I'm going to, you know, my possibilities. I want my ICP to be basically, I have the same ICP as Google, anyone, which is exactly the opposite of what you should do because you have this fixed resources in terms of your, your sales team, your support team, your, obviously your tech team. You need to focus on the things that can have the most impact. And so we, we suffered that challenge at Indus in the early days. And, and so we got focused, but now we've kind of earned the right based on our success to go international. So that's really exciting. I think the other thing, if we get into the, the weeds just a teeny bit, is the great promise of technology, at least in construction, and maybe even broadly, is if I have a plan, can you quote unquote automatically tell me when I'm off the plan? So our technology in many ways is helping people see what's happening. Well, if I can marry that to the planning that's happening and be able to sort of help companies auto-correct, auto-alert more easily and, and get in front and figure things out two weeks before they might normally do it manually, well, there's massive advantage to that. I mean, completing a construction project a month ahead can be millions of dollars in benefits. So that's the next thing we're going to be doing. And then finally, right now, we're very focused on computer vision, so cameras and capturing things and figuring it out and using AI to determine, you know, is someone wearing their hard helmet or not? Um, is that what they're doing? Is that excavation or is it some other form of activity? Well, the next step will be to sort of add other sources of data beyond computer vision. So that's what's next. Um, so exciting stuff. And I, um, I'll make a little plug. I, I decided a couple of years ago, I don't know that I'm going to go to work for the foreseeable future for any company that now everyone pretty much says they're an AI company, but for a true AI startup, because I, I do honestly believe AI is going to change the world. I'll make another plug. There's a book called AI Superpowers. It's a fascinating book that just talks about sort of the distinction between like who's going to win the war of AI, China or the US. But in the process of, of making the argument, this author just highlights a lot of really interesting informative things. And I happen to be somebody who really believes this technology is going to be more transformative, honestly, than the internet. I know that sounds crazy and maybe a little too provocative, but I believe that. So I'm excited to be a part of a company that's applying that to a new space. And, and again, doing our best to put a little dent in the universe. 
exciting to hear about the next things at Indus. And uh, if you're listening right now, I'll be sure to include the links to the book uh, Pat mentioned uh, in the podcast as well. Um, as we're wrapping up here, Pat, any parting thoughts or anything else you would like to share? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, hopefully that was there was some some nuggets in there that are used for helpful. I would just say, you know, just may sound lame, but you know, follow your dreams, right? I think. There are enough of us, you hear the stories where people do things maybe for long times and go, God, that's, I wasn't fulfilled. I wasn't happy. And you know, it's maybe more what my parents wanted to do. And I'm not saying go on a wild goose chase, you know, forever for the, your whole life. But I, I, I will say there's a lot to be said to finding something you're good at, you're passionate about, that excites you. Um, and, you know, if that happens to be sales, more power to you. I wish you all the best. I think it's, it's the greatest career in the world. I believe that genuinely. I've, I've, it's been great to me. Um, and yeah, I hope, I hope some of this has been helpful. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening. Please hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week 